Good morning. First thing I kind of want to take care of and, and do this morning is to uh, personally thank, on behalf of everybody else, uh, all of those of you who helped to uh, set up and were able to participate in, and for those of you who helped to clean up last night, um, I didn't make it past midnight, but I know that some of you did over here in the fellowship hall and uh, a lot of work to, to put that on and so grateful for all of you as we were able to see the old year out. Um, as I say, some of us actually saw it out, some of us just didn't make it quite that far, but as we spent the last evening, I guess is the best way to say it, of, of 2022 together as, as we were able to do that. I am, of course, even more grateful, um, especially with all the illness we've got going around, um, with all of you that are able to be here as we begin the new year of 2023 together in spirit and truth worship this morning to our God and our Savior, and I'm grateful for your being here. However, as we turn the page from 2022 into 2023, just as with every other year, as we all know as well, the turning of the calendar year does nothing to alleviate or to change many of the burdens and the crosses, and the struggles, the trials, the uncertainties, the headaches, and the heartbreaks of the previous year. Those things that everybody is dealing with in their own personal lives, and I want you to make no mistake about it this morning. I believe everybody in this room, no matter how they may have greeted you with a smile, tried to put their best foot forward, everybody in this room is struggling with something. Something that the turning of the new year last night did absolutely nothing to alleviate. And so the question then becomes this morning, how can we have or enjoy a happy new year truly and make it more than a motto, truly enjoy a happy new year when the burdens, the crosses, struggles, the uncertainties, trials, health issues, heartaches, headaches, all of those things follow us right across the calendar turn into the new year. You know, it's sort of like a, a, a deadly winter storm. Up north they just had one that, that took many lives. It's like a deadly winter storm crosses a state line without even acknowledging it and just keeps right on with its path of, of devastation and destruction. And, and the things that all of us are carrying don't pay any attention to the flipping of a calendar year. So, so how can we make 2023 happy and enjoyable? We're still carrying those same burdens. I want to answer that question this morning. I want to answer it by examining the very heavily burdened, heartache, riddled, but still happily, confidently and joyfully lived and fulfilled life of the Apostle Paul. If you want to turn to 2 Corinthians 11, you can. 
We're all pretty familiar with Paul's list of, of struggles there. As he outlined them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 24. We're all pretty familiar with the fact, quite likely, that he was whipped almost to death. Not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, but five times. He was whipped almost to death. We're, we're familiar with the fact that he was beaten with rods. Think about that. Somebody with baseball bats might be something that would come to mind as we think about that. He was beaten with rods, not, not once, not twice, but three times. Don't talk about a beat down. Paul knew what that was all about. He was stoned so bad he was left for dead. What a terrible way to die. People just picking up rocks and just, just breaking your bones and scarring you and just piling on and, and beating you. And, and Paul knew what that was like. We're familiar with that passage, how he spent a, a day and a night in the deep. We can look back on it now and say, well, yeah, he did. But, but think about if you're out there each minute for a day and a night in the ocean, stranded, if you will, or in the deep. We're mindful how he told us that he was constantly in peril from robbers, from his own people, from other people. How he was in peril in the city and, and in the country, at sea, and from false brethren all the time. We're told in that passage how he was constantly weary, how he was always at work, often couldn't sleep. You ever had problems sleeping because you hurt so bad? A lot of us know what that's like. He oftentimes went hungry. And he says in that passage that on top of all those things, on top of all those things, daily, he struggled with a deep concern for all the churches of Christ, all the, the congregations, if you will, of the Lord's church, because that was the only church that existed in the first century. No wonder he would write next in verses 29 through, through 33, who is weak and I am not weak. When we think about some of the struggles that we're bearing, it's a good question for Paul to say, hey, I know what it's like to hurt. I, I know what it's like to carry those. He says, who's weak and I'm not weak based on all of those? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? He said, if I must boast, I will boast in the things which confirm concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor, under Aretas the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me. With a garrison. And his, his desire was to arrest me. Paul basically had to flee for his life, and as he goes on to say he did, he says in verse 30, 33, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall. Escaped from his hands. You ever had to run, literally run for your life? You say, wow, Paul, that's quite a list. Paul's not done. In the next chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we read that he struggled with a thorn in his flesh, some fleshly ailment or health issue, which he prayed to be relieved of. Not once, not twice, but three times. But ultimately, unsuccessfully. Many of you in this room are struggling with a health issue. 
that you've asked God to take away, some, some aggravation, some, some worse than others, but, but there's something in your flesh. There is this, this issue that you have. You've prayed to God. And God has not said, yes, I will take that away at this point in time for you. Paul knew that. Paul understood what that was like. And we see some of these struggles that we've already mentioned and others alluded to in other places as well. In the very beginning of 2 Corinthians, listen to this, in the very opening chapter and words of this same epistle, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul wrote, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened above measure. He said it was limitless. Our burdens were immeasurable. I can't begin to tell you how much we suffered. That we were burdened beyond measure, above strength. He said we couldn't deal with it. We didn't have the, the strength to deal with it. So that we despaired even of life. Paul said we thought we were going to die. Was that bad? In the book of Philippians, Paul talked in chapter 1 and verse 16 about those who sought to add affliction to his chains as if he wasn't burdened enough already. All the burdens we've, we've talked about, Paul said, there's people who want to add affliction to my chains. They want to make my suffering worse. Come on, people. He goes on in chapter 3 in verse 8 of Philippians to say how he had counted all things loss. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus is Lord, and he'd suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish. Listen, we don't often think of that as one of the struggles of Paul, but stop and consider it. That's a struggle of Paul as well. He said, I gave up everything. You don't think it's tough to give up everything? Give it a try. Paul said, it's all rubbish. All of those accomplishments, you know, you got a college degree, throw it out. You got a house, burn it down. You got a car, get rid of it. All of a sudden, it starts to register that this was a sacrifice. Paul said, all that stuff, I, it's rubbish. In order that I might gain Christ. We move on in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 17, where Paul wrote, From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I bear in my body. So I've, got, I've got my scar. He had his, his scars. He had those marks on his body. Maybe from the rods, maybe from whatever, but it was things that he had suffered and maybe the stoning he'd suffered for Christ. So this morning, as I continue, what I'd like to do is give us a very quick chronological synopsis of some of these and other struggles and heartaches and hardships and crosses that he had to constantly personally deal with according to the book of Acts. But then, even more importantly, I want to show us how he got through those struggles. How he got through those struggles while managing to maintain his Christian joy and happiness. All of those struggles that we've talked about, all of those struggles that we're going to talk about, Paul got through them with joy. How on earth do you do that? That is the question of the hour. That is the question we need to answer in order to know how to have the happiest or the most joyful of New Year's when we, when we have all those heartaches and burdens that just jump over the calendar when we flip it and stay with us. This is a message that we must certainly make up our minds to take full advantage of in our struggles in this new year of 20 and 23. We will start out 
with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. I'm not going to read it, but you can certainly follow along some of the verses I mentioned. I'm just going to paint you a picture. I'm not going to read each text. We know the story on the road to, to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Paul is on his way to arrest Christians. He's got letters giving him the authority to do that. And as he's on his journey into Damascus, about noontime, this, this light and this voice, and Paul's blinded. He hears this voice. How humbling might that have been? Think about this. You are Saul of Tarsus. You're the man. You got letters from the council that say you can go and arrest Christians. You are leading this little group. You're the man. And all of a sudden, there's this light, there's this, there's this interaction with Jesus, and you wind up not being able to see to the point that those people who are with you have to take you by the hand and lead you into Damascus because you're so blind you can't see anything. How humbling would that be? That's what happened. That had to have been a struggle. And then, stop and consider this. Don't answer out loud, just think about it. I'm gonna ask you a question, but just think. What religion had Paul grown up being groomed, trained, taught meticulously in? Judaism, right? He had studied under Gamaliel, he tells us in another spot. He tells us he had studied under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the greatest teachers of that generation. Paul had, had studied Judaism and he had become a Pharisee of Pharisees, he would tell us, and, and he had excelled and he'd been trained and he'd been educated. It would be like a person raised in a, in a certain denomination and, and groomed, groomed, to be one of the greatest, greatest speakers and teachers of, of that particular religious group and, and trained in seminary by the greatest teachers and preachers. And that's who Paul was. And on the road to Damascus, Paul learns that the religion that he was so meticulously trained and groomed and educated and had grown up in could not save him. Do we have people that struggle with that today that we talk to? Well, mom and dad were this and that, and they taught me this, and I can't believe what you're telling me about the Bible because I just know I was taught different. But that's Paul. That's a struggle. Well, my daddy, my granddaddy, my great-granddaddy all believe this. Well, I can't help it. That's not what the Bible says. That's hard. That's a hard pill to swallow. Paul would even write later, as we talked about last Sunday night in Galatians chapter 3, that the law could save nobody. That's the law he had been trained in and become this incredible teacher. That's hard. That's a struggle. But he did it. And we're only just getting started. Galatians, in Acts chapter 9 and verse 16, Paul told, um, sorry, I'll get this right. In Acts 9 and verse 16, God told Ananias, whom he sent to Paul, or Saul of Tarsus at the time, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And God did. Immediately after his conversion to Christ, his baptism into Christ for the washing away of his sins as it's put in Acts 22 verse 16 when he retells the events that happened here in Acts 9. 
Immediately after his baptism, Paul got up and started preaching the gospel, started preaching the truth about Jesus Christ. The absolute truth of God's word, the, the gospel that saves and, and how others needed to, to hear that gospel and believe that Jesus was that Messiah and how they needed to repent and, and how they needed to, to obey that gospel that, and be obedient to the faith, as he wrote in Romans. How they needed to go through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as he had in the waters of Christian baptism and rise up and, and he preached this gospel. The practice of which his doing that would be the cause or the major source of the majority of his struggles and trials and heartaches and heartbreaks that would happen from then on out throughout the rest of his earthly life. Listen, it was Paul's preaching and teaching the gospel, just telling people the truth that was the major source of the majority of the struggles that he had after that. That's it. That's it. His preaching and teaching like that is what caused him to let, be let down through a wall in a large basket under the cover of darkness in order to escape being assassinated. In Acts 9, 17 through 25, his preaching the gospel is the reason that the Hellenists in Jerusalem attempted to kill him as well. Acts 9, 26 through 30. In Acts chapter 13, if you're following along, Acts 13, preaching the word, preaching the truth, preaching the gospel, is what got him sort of crossways of a certain false prophet who had the ear, <clears throat> excuse me, who had the ear of a powerful proconsul on the island of Cyprus named Sergius Paulus. Now, that could have gone real sideways in a real hurry, but in this case it didn't. As we move on in chapter 13, though, Paul goes to preach the word in Pisidian Antioch. You know what he got for his efforts? He's in, he's in Pisidian Antioch, and he's trying to teach these people the truth that he had learned about, about the gospel and about Christ. You know what he got for his efforts? Trying to save their souls? He got run out of town. He got run out of town for his efforts. How heartbreaking. You, you know, a lot of you people have studied with others. A lot of you know what it's like. You, you study with somebody who, who doesn't believe all that the Bible says, and, and you pray for them, and you want them to, you want them to obey the gospel, and, and you study with them, and, and you get right to that point where they say, I'm not going to do what the Bible says. That's it. Paul's teaching a whole bunch of people in the city in Antioch. More than just one. And he gets run out of town for that. How heartbreaking. In chapter 14, in the city of Iconium, the same thing happened all over again. This came to be a pattern for the problems and the struggles and the trials of Paul. One group of religious people stirring up and poisoning the minds of others against Paul, the truth he taught, and those he taught to and with. That's the pattern. And in the violent abuse that have followed, the Apostle Paul and his companions, just for, again, trying to teach the truth and save souls, they were run out of town. They fled to Lystra. Once again, after preaching the truth, he got dragged out of town and stoned. And I've made this comment before and I'm gonna make it again. When your enemies 
are willing to pursue you in order to stone you to death. They're fairly serious, would you say? They're fairly serious. They're going to spend their time and efforts pursuing you and, and stoning you, taking your life. Eh, it's pretty, that's pretty serious. And so after doing this, they have stoned him so bad that they think he's dead. Now listen, if you're, go, if you're, go, if you're after somebody that hard, you're probably going to make sure they're dead before you leave them there. You've accomplished your goals. He must have been pretty bruised up. They left him for dead. Guess what he did when he got up? <laughs> kept preaching the gospel. He kept preaching the gospel. He went right back to pre preaching the truth and enduring more of the same pain, more of the same problems, more of the same suffering for the cause of Christ that he writes about in places like Colossians 1, 24, and 5. And, and as we read on, and we're going to go even faster here now, but as we read on in the book of Acts, we see that his problems and struggles only abound and compound and multiply from there. Um, his problems multiply between him and, and his brethren and co-workers in the kingdom. We see this in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. We see in the city of Philippi that he and Silas were literally dragged before the authorities, stripped and beaten with rods, and swiftly imprisoned in the inner prison. Acts chapter 16. It's, we see that happen. In Thessalonica, they were victims of mob violence. Mob violence. You ever had a mob after you? Now, I'm not saying our problems aren't real. Our problems are just as real as his. Our problems are, are awful. All I'm saying is, is, is look at his two, and through his two, somehow he was this joyful person, as, as we'll see. I'll, I'll prove it here. But look at the problems. They were victims of mob violence once again in Thessalonica in Acts 17. They had to flee the city under the cover of darkness in order to save their lives. They go on to Berea where they're once again run out of town for simply trying to save souls. Again and again and again, preaching the truth, run out of town. And as you continue through the book of Acts, you're going to see the same sorts of struggles and trials and tragedies and heartaches. You're going to see them, see them pile up. You're going to see them pile on, and you're going to see them happen over and over again in the life of the Apostle Paul. From Athens to Ephesus to his Roman imprisonment, the pattern continues. You know, one of the things that amazes me as I read that is, how many times across this country today, across this country and around this world, are the words that the Apostle Paul wrote down preached. Thousands, right? This is the same guy who preaching this same message was run out of town after town. So, so how do you do it? Here, okay, how do you do it? As, as Joel, Joel, I love what you had to say at the table this morning, brother. Like Joel said, now the good news. How do you do it? How do you, how do, you do that? How do you do that day after day, week after week, Month after month, new year after new year. How do you do it? Discouragement after discouragement. Disappointment after disappointment. How do you do it? How did he do it? How did he do it and maintain his joy, his happiness? I'm going to tell you. He did it the same way 
that we have to do it if we're going to do it because there's only one way to do it. I want to start by showing you how he did it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. How'd he do it? Kept his eyes on heaven. That's it. He let nothing that happened in his life take his eyes off his eternal life. That's it. Look at this with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. I dare say if I went through what the Apostle Paul went through, if I had my eyes on anything else but my eternal reward, I'd have lost heart and given up. He said, but we don't lose heart. Paul, how's that possible? Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction... If you, don't, if you write in your Bible and you don't have that highlighted or, uh, highlighted or underlined or something, do it. Paul says, after all I've shown you, our light affliction, are you kidding me? That's what he said. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. By comparison to what he had in heaven, nothing he went through even was a blip on the radar screen. That's how he did it. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, Paul says, I ain't looking at all that stuff. I ain't looking at the loss. That's just rubbish. I'm not looking at, at, at the beatings. That just that, that doesn't matter. I'm looking at heaven. I'm not looking at the things that are seen. I'm looking by faith to that heavenly reward. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. His daily renewal came from his daily focus on the eternal. And he goes on to elaborate more. If you want to read more about what he elaborates on that, look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 9 later when you get home today. And remember, there was no chapter break when he wrote this. The reason that Paul was always rejoicing, always rejoicing and joyful through all of those gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, life-threatening situations, what carried him through all of those with joy was realizing, and brethren, we got to do this, all the problems of this life, by comparison to our eternal reward in heaven, by comparison to that, They're pretty much non-existent. Don't go home and say, Doug said my problems don't matter. Your problems matter. Doug's problems matter, okay? That's not what I'm saying. We all struggle with something. But what I'm saying is, Paul said that our earthly struggles, no matter what they are, by comparison to heaven, they're not even worthy to be compared. They're just, they're so small compared to heaven. This was his focus. This was his reality. What is your reality? This was his reality. This was his all-consuming passion. This was his concentration, no matter what the nature of his earthly problem. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Listen to this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to com be compared with the glory. Paul, you're out of your mind. Really? Beaten in stone? Huh. Not me, it's out of my mind. 
They don't matter compared to heaven. They're not worthy to be compared. That's what he wrote in Romans 8.18, with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Look at what he goes on to write in Romans 8. If you're not there already, if you haven't looked at Romans 8.18, please turn there. I love and, and loved long before I became a full-time preacher, Romans chapter 8. It is one of the most empowering, incredible, when you, when you are so burdened that you can't hardly crawl forward, when you're struggling to the depths of your soul, when you're going through that, that crushing whatever it is, Romans chapter 8, look what he says in verses 35 through 39. Listen, I know you all know this, but look at it like it's the first time you've ever seen it. Who, the, the Paul who wrote this is the guy that went through all that stuff we talked about. He said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In other words, what, is, what, is it, what am I going to go through that's going to take me away from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, Paul knew something about tribulation. Or distress, he knew something about distress. Or persecution, the guy was stoned and left for dead. Or famine, he said, I often go hungry or nakedness, or peril, or sword, there were people that wanted to kill him. He said, can all that separate me from the love of Christ? As it is written, <clears throat> excuse me, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, Paul says, I know this. This is what kept him going. This was his focus. He said, I am persuaded that neither death nor life. They can kill me if they want to, he said. That's okay. All the problems of this life, that's okay. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor power nor things present like stonings and clubbings and whippings and assassination attempts, Paul. Yeah, like those. Nor things to come. Whatever awaits me tomorrow, whatever awaits me in 2023 or four or five or six or seven or eight or nine. Thought I was going to say 10, didn't you? Things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He said, as long as I'm in Christ, long as I'm in Christ, I know where I'm going. And I know that everything waiting for me there is, by comparison so far, exceeds any of the bad stuff down here. I'm just going to focus on that. Look, look what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> Turn there, would you please? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he, he lets us know again that, that this, is, this is who he is. And, and we're going to notice this word joyful. We're going we're gonna to start talking now about the fact that not only did he go through all this stuff, not only did he keep his eyes on heaven, but how that keeping his eyes on heaven gave him joy, how he was a joyful person. You may be sitting there this morning saying, well, I don't know how we can just assume that Paul is joyful. Well, I'm not asking you to assume it. I'm going to show you. Don't assume anything. Look it up. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, right back to 2 Corinthians book again, chapter 6, verse 3. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. In much patience, here they come, here's his sufferings, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, that's the whippings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, 
in fastings. Did you see the list? There's the struggles again. Now he flips the coin. How do you act in all those problems, Paul? By purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. How did he get through all of those things? In verses 4 and 5, he got through them by the things listed in 6 and 7, but he goes on, by honor, watch this now, don't, I, I've got this dishonor highlighted here, by honor and dishonor, listen, there were people that honored what Paul had to say, right? We know that. But some people thought he was very dishonorable. Some people gave him a bad name. He said, by honor and dishonor. There were people out there that were dishonoring everything he said, fighting about it. Well, they wanted to kill him, we know that. But, but he goes on to say, by evil report and good report. There were people that were given evil reports about him teaching the truth. It is not easy to struggle and suffer when there are people out there who are, who are saying, evil things about you and giving evil reports about you because you're simply preaching the truth. Paul knew that. He struggled with that. He understood that. He says, as deceivers, there were people that said, they're a deceiver. Paul's a deceiver. Can't listen to him. Paul struggled with that. He says, and yet true. As unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not yet not killed. Watch this. As sorrowful, yet, see the next two words? Always. Rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Always rejoicing, Paul? Always? When, when verse 4, you got these tribulations and needs and distresses and stripes and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and all of that, he said, yeah, always rejoicing. Paul was joyful in all his affliction because his attention was always on heaven. One of the things that we often fail to understand about that is one of the sources of Paul's joy. Now, his Paul, Paul's joy came from his focus on heaven, yes. Paul's rejoicing came from knowing what was waiting for him. But there's another source of Paul's joy that I want to touch on before we close because it's a source of joy that, that we don't often talk about with Paul. You know what one of his greatest, one of his greatest sources of joy was? Don't answer, just think about it. Being with and concerning his like-minded brethren. That's part of Paul's biggest, that's one of Paul's biggest sources of joy. That's part of his joy. His joy came from and centered around and found itself in the love and company of his heaven-bound, like-minded brethren. How do we know this? Well, here's how we know it. The Apostle Paul used the word joy 22 times in his 13 known epistles. That's not to mention the words rejoice and rejoicing which occur an additional 31 times on top of the 22 times he uses the word joy. And many of those occurrences of those words, listen now, he uses to describe his own state of mind. That's how we know he was joyful. Paul, Paul often used those sorts of terms to describe himself and his own state of mind. 
That is true of his usage of the word joy in the 22 times he uses it. A lot of times he's talking about himself, and the majority of those times he's talking about his own joy. It is used in connection with the measure of joy that he has to and through his brethren. Consider these passages with me. I'm going to read through them quickly. If you've got time to turn there, that's fine. You better just take them down. In Romans 14, 17, he said, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The church is about joy. That church Paul was a part of, that church that we see in the Bible, that the apostles worked and worshipped in, that kingdom of God, that church of Christ, is, is about peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 15, verse 13, Paul wrote, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Did Paul have a lot of hope? Did Paul have a lot of hope? Yes, Paul had a lot of hope. Did Paul know how to get that hope? Yes. And he wrote to them that he wanted God to fill them in the church with all joy and peace, that they would have this too. Okay? Well, how is that possible? Romans 15 and verse 32. Paul requested their prayers in the church of Christ at Rome that he may come to them with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with them. Brethren, it should be refreshing to be together with one another. Through all that stuff that he went through, he said, I want to come to you with joy and be refreshed by you. We move on. 2 Corinthians, we're back into that 2 Corinthians book. Chapter 1, verse 24. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy. That was the whole reason that Paul was working with them, for their joy. They got that joy as they worked together and they taught together. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 3. Paul says, and I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. Right there in that passage says that my joy, Paul had joy, that my joy is the joy of you all. We ought to have a common joy, and our common joy ought to come from one another as we work together and we are refreshed by one another. That was a big source of joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 13. Paul wrote, Therefore we have been comforted in your comfort. Listen. And we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. The joy and the refreshing was emanating from brethren who loved and cared for one another, being together. In Philippians 1 and verse 4, Paul said that he prayed for the Philippians, making request for them with joy. Paul was joyful as he prayed about the Philippians. As he prayed about his brethren, that brought him joy. In Philippians 1.25, he says, Being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress in joy of faith. Paul said, I'm going to stay and work with you for your joy. See, Paul realized he was a source of joy to them, and Paul got his joy back from being with them. This is a big deal. Paul said in Philippians 2.2, Fulfill my joy. By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Fulfill my joy. Paul already had joy, but he said, make it fulfilled, make it total, make it complete by working together. In Colossians 1 and verse 11, as we're studying on Wednesday night, Paul prayed that his Colossian brethren might be strengthened with all might according to God's glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. 
Let me give you just a few others here from the Thessalonian letters. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 19 and 20. If you ever wondered when I said Paul was joyful, think, well, I don't know about that. Well, this is a verse that not only proves that Paul was joyful, but it also proves that a lot of his joy came from his brethren. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy of, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, for you are our glory and joy. Paul said, you're my joy. And to know that you're going to be faithful when the Lord comes and we're going to spend eternity in heaven together. That's what my joy comes from. He had his eyes on heaven not only for himself, but for his brethren. In 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 9, he says, What thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy which we rejoice for your sake before our God? Paul was full of joy. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 4, he told Timothy that he greatly desired to see him, being mindful of his tears, that he might be filled with joy. Paul prayed that he could get to Timothy because he knew when he could that he'd have that joy between brothers. Finally, two passages quickly from Philemon. Philemon 1 and verse 7. Paul wrote, we have great joy and consolation in your love. Do you find joy and consolation in your brethren's love for you? If you don't, you ought to. If you don't, maybe that's why you struggle so hard sometimes. Because you need that joy in keeping each other's eyes on heaven and being refreshed as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. Finally, Philemon 1 and verse 20 Paul wrote, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Aren't there some days you just need your brethren to refresh you and bring you joy? That's where Paul's joy came from, a lot of it. And it carried him through. What's the bottom line or takeaway for all of this as we begin this new year? Simply this. If we want, if we truly want, really, if, if we believe the Bible and we really want the greatest, happiest, most joyful new year that we can possibly have, despite all of the heartaches and struggles that are inevitable that we're going to drag with us into this new year and all of the ones coming up that we can't see, the only way to accomplish that, according to Scripture, in the life of this man who, who knew what struggle was about, is to keep our focus only on heaven. To find our joy in that focus on heaven. And to find the joy that we get by being together with one another as we encourage each other and help each other get to heaven. You want a happy new year? That's where it comes from. According to Paul. And I don't know of any other way other than the Bible way to get it to this year. Surround yourself and take full advantage of every opportunity that you possibly physically can to be together with your brethren, not just in this building, but all of the other things that are going on. Surround yourself with like-minded brethren. I'll tell you something, when you do that, those brethren you surround yourself with, they're going to be struggling too. All of us have problems. And they're imperfect. And sometimes they ain't going to say exactly maybe what you want to hear. Well, sometimes you may not say exactly what they want to hear either because we're all struggling in the same thing together. But if we all help each other keep our eyes on that heavenly goal, that's where our joy will come from, despite whatever else comes at us. 
It would enable Paul to say at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, the following. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept faith. I don't know if Paul could have done that if he hadn't kept his eyes on heaven. Matter of fact, you know what the very next thing he talks about in that text? Heaven. Finally, his heavenly reward. He says, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The very next thing out of his mouth when he tells you he's finished the race is, is he did it because of this crown of righteousness. Finally. And I can almost hear Paul saying after all, finally, <laughs> I made it. There's this crown of righteousness. God, the, the, the eternal reward is right there, and I'm, I'm right on the doorstep. Don't you want to be able to say that when your time comes? How many of you want to be able to say that when your time comes? Right? Every one of us. And to know without a doubt that it's absolutely true. Well, listen, in order to be able to say it and know that it's absolutely true, to say what he said, then you've got to do what he did. Focus on heaven no matter what happens. Find your joy in that heavenly focus and surround yourself, Bible classes, anything you can. Surround yourself and be a part of your like-minded brethren that are going to help you to get there and fill you with joy at every opportunity. And here's a way to remember that as we conclude. It's the new year, 2023. Today's Sunday. As I mentioned previously, in studying for this sermon, a little of it's kind of seeped out. There are not 52 Lord's Days in this new year. There's 53. This year begins on a Sunday, and the very last day of the year is a Sunday. There's 53. 2023 begins and ends with the Lord's Day, right? 2023 begins and ends with worship. That should be true not only on a literal calendar basis, but if we want that joy in our lives that will sustain us, that ought to be our motto. 2023 for me begins with and ends with worship. And that includes everything under that umbrella of being with the like-minded saints. Worship of that heavenly Father who's given us new life, new hope, and newness of life, whose mercies are new every morning. That focus will help us through any trial. This morning, If you're not a Christian, if your sins have never been forgiven, you, you don't have that hope. You don't have that newness of life. You've got, you got to have your sins forgiven the way God said. And, and God told us through the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost when he opened up the church that we need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. There's, there's no other way to get your sins forgiven. Paul in Acts 22 and verse 16 had to arise and be baptized and have his sins washed away. If you've never done that, if you've never started that new life, if you've never been baptized and arisen to walk in newness of life, hey, first day of the new year, first Lord's day of the new year would be a great day to do that. Amen, church? We'd love to have you do that. You can do it right now. Or if you're here this morning and you're saying, I'm one of those people whose crosses are too heavy to bear. I have struggles and I have burdens and I, I really, really, really need to solidify my focus on heaven. I don't want to live like this anymore. I want that joy. We'll pray for you. We'll help you in any way we can. If you have a need, we come to the front as we stand and sing.